Head with me to Ecclesiastes. We're going to close in Ecclesiastes. You, you realize by now Solomon has written the book of Ecclesiastes as an utter and complete failure. He, um, in his life, honored the Lord. God blessed him mightily with all the wisdom of this world, with all the money of this world, with all the strength and power of this world. And uh, on top of that was God's power through his spirit, I believe. And Saul had everything he needed, uh, Solomon rather, had everything he needed to live a complete life worshiping and honoring the living God. And we read uh, together in the beginning of our study that he turned to a lascivious lifestyle. He did everything contrary to God's word. Remember God said if you keep your word and honor me, I will honor you and your kingdom. But Solomon turned away from the Lord, turned far away from the Lord, gave his heart over to lasciviousness, a, a wicked lifestyle, uh, of a debauched lifestyle. And now God uses him at the end of his life. To me, this has always been puzzling. When I get to heaven, I have a, a list of questions, and this is on the list. Why, Lord, would you give him to write the book of Ecclesiastes? And after after studying it for so long over the period of years, I've come to the conclusion God wants to show us a good example of a bad example in his word. Not only that, he shows us the thinking of a man who's in the gutter, if you would, who's away from the Lord. Now, toward the end of the book, and I want you to go there in chapter 12 for a few moments, please. In chapter 12, toward the end of the book, it seems like Solomon, now his mind starts to clear of the fuzz a little bit and he recognizes though we never read about a true repentance in the entire book uh, we never read of a true repentance we see that he used secular means to accomplish pleasure in that he, 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 he bought things, he built things he had things, he saw things he did things, he tried to fill his life with pleasure and that, that empty void that the spirit of God once held in his life so we read in verse, um, picking up, please, if you would, in verse 9. Well, first of all, realize he recognizes he's toward the end of his life. You see that in verse 6. He said, or ever the silver cord is loosed. We, we sing a song, someday the silver cord will break, and I know more as now shall see. Terrible song, <laughs> but uh, nonetheless a song. This sil one day the silver cord will loose, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is broken at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. He knows that he's close to the end of his life. He recognizes that. And I think he gets nostalgic. And sometimes people do that. I recognize that. He says in verse 9, Moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge, yea, he, give, he gave good heed, and sought out and set in order many proverbs. Remember, he, he wrote hundreds of proverbs, the scriptures tell us, even more than we have recorded within our book of proverbs. He said, the preacher sought to find out acceptable words, and that which was written was upright and even words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and nails fastened by the master of assemblies, which are given by one shepherd. Further, by these, my son, be admonished of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of a flesh. That's for teachers everywhere, obviously. 
now in verse uh, uh, 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. So in his cynicism, he, his mind clears it a little bit, it appears to me, and he says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For, because God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or it be evil. Solomon seemed to recognize that he was going to stand before the Lord and give account for his total chaos of a life. Now, was he, I, I fully expect to see King Solomon in heaven. I don't question that even a little bit. But I recognize that as he's going to heaven and have to give account, the king of Israel, every one of us, the same thing is going to happen. We're saved, we're going to heaven, but there's a day coming in which we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give account for the things done in our body. And I think Solomon is one of those. So King Solomon, his mind clears a little bit, but I want to go back, if I can, to a chapter that I think is particularly focused. Turn with me to chapter 5 for a moment. All the way back to chapter 5. Personally, and this is my own personal opinion, I did not read this in any of the commentaries, and I had a, a, a dozen or so, maybe a few more of that, commentaries on Solomon and Ecclesiastes. I did not read this in any of them, but I believe, as I look through this whole book, the whole book of Ecclesiastes was Solomon's heart laid out there on the table. This is really how he felt. Now, of course, the Spirit of God used him to do this. We recognize that. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. The Spirit of God used him to do this. I realize that. But, but I also think these are all the things that plagued him. These were all the parts of his life that plagued him. And I gave an example one time. He says, uh, you get all this money and you leave it to someone and they're going to blow it. He didn't use those words. You get that, right? But that was his term. You know, and he's showing his heart before the people, at least. In chapter 5, and I'd like to, us to look unto at verse, um, I'm in Proverbs, no wonder, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and look with me please right at verse 1. He says this, and I think this is fascinating, he says, keep thy foot when you go into the house of God. Now please realize he's talking about the temple. He's talking about, the, he's not talking about a church somewhere, he's talking about the temple. This is the temple that he built. The Spirit of God gave David the plans. David gave Solomon the money. Solomon built the temple. This is just essentially it. And so, uh, uh, one of the most magnificent temple that was ever upon the face of the earth. It was not as large as temples after that, perhaps, meaning uh, Herod's temple. It was, it was bigger than uh, Zerubbabel's temple, smaller than Herod's temple, but it was still the most ornate temple that was ever built. And Solomon had that built. Now, we won't turn there. Well, let's turn there for a moment. Keep your hand here. We're coming right back. Head with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. What Solomon is dedicating the temple. And this is one of the most fascinating things you will read in the Word of God if you stop to contemplate it for a moment. Solomon is, is, is dedicating the temple, and there's great praise in all of Israel's there. There's several hundred thousand people there to celebrate uh, the dedication of this glorious, glorious temple. 
of the Lord. And, and Solomon comes up with this wonderful prayer and he praises God and he's praying to God and he stops praying. And we'll pick it up in chapter 7 in verse 2 Chronicles 7, 1. Now when Solomon had ceased praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house. This goes all the way back. Remember when the fire came down from heaven and there is the, the entire sacrifice totally consumed by God. By God alone, it's consumed. And then God's glory goes into that temple and fills the entire thing, picking it up in verse 2. And the priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord uh, uh, came down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement and worshiped and praised God saying, for he is good and his mercy endures forever. So can you get that scene? It's like you have this temple up on a hill and they must have surrounded it down in the Kidron Valley, the Tyropian Valley, looking up at that temple. There's not enough room for all of them. And they're looking up at that temple and God's glory comes down and it must have shone like the brightest bulb man has ever seen. And the people are shocked and uh, just absorbed in the whole thing, staring at the glory of God in verse 6. And kings and all the peoples offered sacrifices before the Lord. And the king and all the peoples offered sacrifices before the Lord. And King Solomon uh, offered a sacrifice of 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king of all and all the people dedicated the house of the Lord. You get that? 22,000 oxen. Mind-boggling. Absolutely mind-boggling. And then when you get to 120,000 sheep. You know, when we read in the scriptures, God is not pleased with rivers of blood. That's exactly what this was. Rivers of blood running down into the Kidron Valley from the Temple Mount. An, an, an incredible, incredible sight. All of that, and it did not last 100 years. Solomon began in his own life to desecrate that temple, in his own life. He's the one responsible for the beginning of the end of, the, of Solomon's temple, the greatest temple that it was ever on the face of the earth. Why? Because of his sin. And so now back with me to Ecclesiastes. This is where I believe his reference is coming from. The glory of that temple. And now the temple's desecrated. And I believe that Solomon is placing himself right there. Uh, speaking in the third person, if you would. It's funny if you hear my granddaughter, Addie. This is Addie. Addie does this. Addie does that. She's talking about herself in the third person. <laughs> But recognize what, what uh, we read here. He says, keep thy foot when you go into the house of God. Essentially, we would put it in the vernacular, watch your step. Watch your step when you go into the house of God. He's talking about the temple. He says, and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they do evil. Uh, the concept here is, 
from Solomon and of course all the other biblical writers is you are standing on holy ground when you go into the temple. You are standing on holy ground and you need to make sure that you are watching your step when you get in there. And it's interesting, God says similar things to you and I, right? As a Christian, he says, see then that you walk circumspectly. It's a straight walk. And don't be have one foot here and the other foot tapping around in the world. When you walk with me, walk with me. Abide in me and let my word abide in you. That's a fixed position. That's not a little bit of abiding. Let my word abide in you. It's a fixed position. And he's, uh, Solomon's saying very, the very same thing, of course, back in Old uh, Testament times. Recognize when you go into the house of God, be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. Now that has to do, of course, with someone bringing a sacrifice to the altar and thinking, of course, that they're doing something right. And they were, to a certain extent, they're supposed to bring a sacrifice. But what's happened is they're completely out of the will of God, completely out of the word of God, and they're bringing a sacrifice that's foolish, that's not acceptable to God. God is not interested in that. And you see that repeated throughout the whole Old Testament. I am not interested in your sacrifice. Don't bring them. I'm, I'm, I'm sickened by them. Why? Because Israel was still bringing sacrifices, but their heart was no longer part of it. Now, the concept, I, I realize this, we're talking about Old Testament here, and I know that the concept is uh, New Testament. There's no, uh, I mean, we're in New Testament. This is Old Testament. So I know there's a, there's a, dispensational distinction there that we need to be careful but when we go into the house of God we would call this the church recognize we come into this place this is not God's house it's, it's totally different today I'm sure that you recognize that instead of going to the temple to worship instead of going to the temple to worship we bring the temple to worship there's a big difference isn't it why because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Whether we meet here or in a cave, we have no designated place to meet as a New Testament church. It could be anywhere. New Testament people met out on the ground somewhere. They met in caves. They, they rented a hired home somewhere. And they would meet together for fellowship. They brought the temple to worship where Israel went to the temple to worship. So we, as the Spirit of God dwelling in us, we, when we come to worship, that's the temple of God. But Paul says some things about that to Timothy, doesn't he? And I won't have you turn there. Remember, he says you need to be careful when you go and meet together as brethren. Make sure you're careful now in what you do. There's a strict warning to Timothy about uh, how you behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, he's not only talking about individually and physically and spiritually he's talking about a collective group be careful be careful uh, what you do so as as we think about meeting together remember the the early church didn't meet together uh, as we do you know sunday school sunday morning sunday evening wednesday evening they didn't do that because they were all coming from giant distances when they met together usually it was all day long they would have meals together. It would be all day long, even unto a couple of days when they met together to worship. Uh, we looked at it a little bit this morning. Remember the Apostle Paul 
they met on the first day of the week at Troas, and what they do? They stayed the entire day. Even Paul was preaching till midnight. And then Eutychus, the father of all those who fall asleep in church, fell down from the loft, remember, and Paul raised him up dead. So we have this concept where God is working, and uh, Solomon recognizes that, and he says, listen, I would give a sacrifice of fools. And you can imagine, even while he was in gross immorality, he was still bringing his sacrifice. And God wasn't in it any longer. He was still part of temple worship, but God wasn't in any of it. But notice what he says, please, in verse 2. And be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. Now, what did Solomon utter before the Lord? Well, we don't exactly know. He maybe made a lot of promises to the Lord. Have you ever made any promises to the Lord? Lord, I I promise if you get me through this... (laughs) If you get me out of this, I will never, you know, that type of thing. If you'll only heal me, I will always. Now, I don't know Solomon's complete condition here, but I believe he probably had made some promises to God along the way, and he just simply says this. Don't be rash with your mouth. Be careful with your mouth, and be more ready to hear. Notice in verse uh, uh, verse 2 again. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be uh, hasty to utter anything uh, before God. Why? Because God, notice, for God is in heaven, and you upon the uh, earth, therefore let your words be few. This is so interesting. Be quiet. Why? Don't be rash with your mouth. Why is that, Lord? Well, because God is in heaven, and you're making promises, and you are just a mere mortal being. Mortal being, I guess it is not mortal, mortal being. You're just a mortal being, and here you are on earth making these great outlandish promises to God. Don't be rash with your mouth. Don't be that rash to say things. Remember, we, hit, we could go all the way back, of course, to the book of James. Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak. And then he adds slow to wrath. But be swift to hear. Be more ready to hear than speak up. Let everyone be swift here. Isaiah has a good point on that, and I won't have you turn to it for the sake of time, but in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 17, God warns the nation of Israel, listen, don't be rash with your mouth. So don't be rash with your mouth. Turn with me, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 15 for a moment. I want you to see someone who was very rash with his mouth. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, you'll recognize this right away. This is King Saul. He was the, he was the uh, king prior to Solomon, uh, prior to David, and then David, of course, uh, uh, died, and Solomon took over for him. But I want you to see what, what, um, what happened with, uh, with Saul. Samuel left. They're going into battle against the uh, Amalekites, and Samuel leaves the scene. He's the priest. Remember, in that day, the priest led the king. The priest was in charge. Now, in our days, the king seems to be giving orders to priests. But in, in that day, the priest led the king, the prophet, that is, and that would be uh, Samuel. And Samuel went away. And Solomon was, I mean, King Saul was to wait, wait 
for Samuel to come back. Why? Because there needed to be an offering given. And uh, the, the rebuke was, you wait for me, and when you are able to catch, capture and, and kill the Philistines, you need to kill them all and everything. Don't touch a bit of it. Don't touch a bit of it. In verse uh, 12, if you would, we'll pick it up right there. And when uh, Samuel rose up to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, I set him up a place, and he's gone about and passed down to Gigal. So uh, Saul had left the position that Solomon, uh, that Samuel had left him in, and now he's traveling, picking it up in verse 13. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord. I have performed the commandments of the Lord. I've done everything God said. I've done everything you've told me, everything God instructed. And Saul said, pick it up please in verse uh, 14. And, and, uh, verse 14. And Samuel said, What meaneth then the bleeding of the sheep in mine ears and the lowing of the oxen? If you killed all of their people and you also killed all of the animals, how come I can hear sheep? How come I can hear cows mooing, if you would? And then Saul said, they have brought, uh, they have brought them from the Amalekites and from the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the sacrifices unto the Lord and the rest they have utterly destroyed. Then Solomon said to uh, Samuel said to Saul, Stay, and I will tell thee what the Lord has said to me this night. And he said, Say on. And Samuel said, When you were little in your own sight, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel. And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord set thee on a journey and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners and the Amalekites and fight against them till they be consumed. Why then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but did fly upon the spoil and did evil in the sight of the Lord? Now skip over to 23, please. Notice what he said. Verse 22. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as to obeying his vo the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as iniquity and idolatry. So then he said, God's going to remove the kingdom from you. So talking to Saul, obviously, what Samuel said is you should have listened instead of being quick to think about the sacrifice. But we saved the best for the sacrifice. God, you don't understand. Yes, I used this money to do these sinful things. I used this money to be foolish. I use this money over here to do this, but I save the best money for you. No. God is not pleased. I give, well, yes, I know I don't come to church much, and I don't bother with uh, biblical things, and I'm not involved in the church, but I give God Sundays. God knows the heart. God's interested in the heart. And here's back in Ecclesiastes chapter uh, 5, his uh, Solomon, and he now recognizes what he's done. And he says, listen, it's better, it's better to be quiet and hear God and essentially do God's will instead of doing your own will, which is just simply a, a useless thing. It's not acceptable to God at all. 
Then he says something very interesting to me, and uh, it, it's a little bit questionable. I, he, he's talking about uh, coming before the Lord in prayer, of course, coming before the Lord uh, with a vow, coming before the Lord and listening rather than giving the sacrifice of fools. But uh, as he comes before the Lord now in, in chapter 3, uh, in verse 3 rather, he says, For a dream comes through the multitude of busyness, and a fool's voice is known by the multitude of words. Um, I think the reference here is daydreaming. I can't be sure about that. It was difficult for me to research this out. But I think he's talking about daydreaming. Re remember, someone's really, really busy, and yet they're daydreamers. That is, there's no substance to their thoughts. Uh, it's just, if you would, fantasyful thinking. And here he mentions, a dream comes through the multitude of business and a fool's voice is known by the multitude of words. Now we won't turn to the Proverbs, but I'm sure you recognize the Proverbs in this. There is, however, one passage I'd like you to turn to. Look at verse 7 here. Verse 7, same chapter. For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there are also vanities. But fear the, see, the multitude of dreams. Do you ever think about useless stuff? My mind is filled with useless information. Did you know the velocity of the average sneeze is 400 miles an hour? That's a fact. So what? Why do I remember that? Why? My mind is filled with useless stuff. Try to recall a Bible verse? I don't know. It's somewhere in the New or Old Testament. We find that we fill our mind with the trivial. And I don't think I'm alone. Maybe I am. Forgive me if I am. But that's the term here. The multitude of dreams, thinking about things that are inconsequential. There's no substance behind them. You're never going to do that. Like I fill my mind with moving to Florida. I'm never going to go there. I'll go and visit once in a while, but you know my whole family's here. Why am I going to go there? Because I'm warm in the winter. That's why I want to be there. But you, you get the thought. You fill your mind with the irrelevant instead of taking on the substance of God's word. So here's the, the thought about, about don't fill your mind with those things. I was reading something by, uh, it was by uh, John Bunyan, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress. In prayer... It is better to have a heart without words than to have words without a heart. Isn't that beautiful? He said it's better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. And you know what happened, of course, uh, when, when uh, Hannah was praying. Remember, she went before Eli, and she was in the, in the tabernacle praying and she, um, she was praying, and she was just there praying to the Lord because she wanted a child. And the scriptures say that her lips were moving, but no words were coming out. 
And Eli, the high priest, called her a drunkard. You're just a drunkard. Get out of here, you shameful person. And she said, not so, Lord. I, I, I've been, I'm praying for a child. I'm praying for a child. And then it's so interesting that God grants her uh, that, that prayer for, for the child. But Eli, to Eli, she was just moving her lips and nothing was coming out. And God would rather have you pray to him individually and with your heart than to get up in front of a group of people and give great testimony with no substance to it at all. No substance at all. So God is looking for a substance from our life, from you and I. Um, let's continue on a little bit. Go to chapter, go back to chapter 5 now. And now he comes up with something else. Now, I personally, again, I'm, I'm applying this to him. I hope I'm doing this correctly, but I'm applying to him. I think Solomon vowed an awful lot of vows before the Lord. Now, for you and I, for, for you and I, we're going to see something a little different here, but for you and I, vowing vows before the Lord, uh, God um, squashes that, and we'll see this in a moment. God doesn't want us making vows before him. But in Old Testament times, this was perfectly okay. There was no problem with making a vow. For example, I won't have you turn there, but in the book of Numbers, chapter 6, there was the vow of a Nazarite, where you would vow your life to the Lord for a certain number of years. It was okay to do that and did that. There's other vows given in the Old Testament that was acceptable before God, and God would honor those vows if you would honor your vow of a Nazarite, obviously, along with them. But then in the scriptures, there were some vows that were very, very silly, very ridiculous. I want, I want us to look at one if we could. Turn with me to Judges chapter 11. Judges chapter 11. This I do not have the answer to, and, you, and so after church, you can ask Pastor Rob about this, okay? Because um, I'm going home for pizza. <laughs> okay, uh, in Judges chapter 11... Jephthah. Jephthah is the new judge, the ninth judge of the nation of Israel. And he has a good relationship with the Lord, and the Lord's going to use him to free Israel uh, from the Ammonites and other people in the land. So we're in Judges chapter 11. I'd like us to pick it up in verse 29, please. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed over uh, Gilead and Manasseh and passed over Mizpah unto Gilead. And from Mizpah he, uh, of Gilead, he passed over unto the children of Ammon. Now listen to this, please. Now here's the guy, the Spirit of God's on him, right? Listen to what he does. And he said, verse 30, And Jephthah bowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou shalt without fail, deliver the children of Ammon into my hands. Now, wait a minute. God had already said, God had already said he was going to use Jephthah, uh, Jephthah to deliver Israel. But now he makes a rule, a, a vow to the Lord. He says, if you shall deliver them into my hand, verse 31, then it shall be that whatever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the children of Ammon shall, I, shall surely be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. 
whatever it is, God, I'm, I'm, I'm a man of my word. I'm going to keep my word. No matter what comes out of my house, that I'm going to offer up as a burnt offering to the Lord. That's killing it, obviously, and burning the remains. He gets there, and guess who runs out? His only daughter, his only child. She runs out the door. Now he's in trouble, right? He's vowed a great vow before the Lord. And we don't know what happened. It shuts down. We have no clue what happened. We know she went away for a while and came back, and we don't know we do not know what happened. Did he really s- sacrifice his daughter? I tend to think not, but I don't know. I'd rather think not. But I do not know that. I believe God would stop him in the process, but I don't know any of that. All I'm saying is, there's some silly vows. Remember the men that swore to kill Paul, 40 of them? We will not eat till we kill them. They're pretty hungry by now, wouldn't you say? (coughs) It's interesting. People make silly vows. You ever make a silly vow? I have. Silly vows. Things you cannot keep, or even though... You were sincere at the moment you made them. You you were sacrificial at the moment you made it. But you made a vow and you were rash with your mouth. And you swore something here on earth that you have no control over. No control uh, whatsoever. We need to be careful what we say before the Lord. Remember, the fool speaks rashly. The fool will speak quickly and say, silly things that he cannot ever, ever uh, be a part of. Now let's see what God says about vows. And I think this was, this is what Solomon did. Solomon probably made all kinds of vows before the Lord. He had vowed that he would keep God's word. He had vowed that he would lead the nation. He had maybe uh, other vows along the way and he recognized, wait a minute, I haven't kept my vows before the Lord. Now, what about you and I? Well, as a, even part of the Old Testament, remember the Lord Jesus Christ was under the law, so this would be an Old Testament concept. But turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 for a moment, please. Matthew chapter 5. You're very aware of this, I know that, please. But in Matthew chapter 5, notice, please, in verse uh, 33 of Matthew 5. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 33. Lord Jesus is speaking and he says in verse 33, Again you have heard that it's been said by them of old, Thou shalt not purge thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. Don't, don't, don't be lying now. When you, when you bring something before the Lord, make sure that you fulfill that. And we'll see that also. Verse 34. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne. I swear by the kingdom of heaven. What do you have to do with it? Just be thankful you're going there. You, you, you can't do anything about that. Then he says, nor by the earth, for it's God's footstool. Nor by Jerusalem, because it's, it's the city of the great king. You can't swear by any of this. Why? Because you can't affect any of it. You can't promise God his kingdom. You can't promise heaven. I swear by heaven. I swear to God all this business. 
neither shalt thou swear by thine head, because you cannot make one here um, white or black. Oh, I managed to get them white, but we recognize that. Okay, verse 37. Let your communication be yea, yea, and nay, nay, for whatever is more than these comes of evil. So they were swearing by all kinds of stuff. Um, I've heard some people swear by some silly things. I don't know if you have. In, in the 1970s, I was uh, in the Charlestown Navy Yard in Boston, and essentially the Charlestown Navy Yard was run by the Italian people. I like Italian people. I just kid with them all the time, but I like Italian people. But in the 70s, it was big time. They controlled completely the Charlestown Navy Yard. They had all the higher jobs. They had all of the important jobs in the whole place. And here I am, Polish. Certainly, certainly I was in trouble right from the start. But um, I remember one time I was sent to work with a guy, and we were drilling out big, giant lead pieces. In a ship, they put lead to keep the buoyancy straight different amounts of lead in different places depending on the ship. And we were drilling big holes in lead, and, and I was just a kid. I was in the 70s. I was in my, how old would I be? In my 20s, in the 70s. So I'm working with this guy, and, and I became friendly with him, and he was, he was Italian. He was Italian as sausage, this kid. And uh, he came in, uh, and he was visibly upset, and I think his name was Antonio or something, you know, one of those Italian names. Uh, I, I, I don't remember his name, but he, I said, what's, what's the matter? He said, a car crashed into my mother's house last night, and it shot right into the bedroom. And he said, but my mother wasn't in it. And I thought, oh, thank the Lord. I was, you know, I was glad his mother wasn't there. And then I said, How's the driver of the car? Now, I think that was a good question, don't you? I thought it was a good question. He went berserk. He went berserk. I swear by my mother's eyes, I will kill that man. He's swearing by his mother's eyes. I didn't know you could do that. Did you? What does that mean? I had no clue what that meant, but he went berserk. He didn't care about the guy that crashed in the house, obviously. Because by his mother's eyes, he was going to kill him. Now, I don't know if he ever did. I asked my boss, get me out of here. Get me away before my eyes were going around in the drill press or something. People swear by things. You know, let's look at this just for a moment. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 23, please. Matthew 23. After a while, the Pharisees and Sadducees were swearing by things like outdoing out, out one another. They were trying to outdo one another what they swore by. I don't know if they could swear by their mother's eyes. That was a big one to me. But I want you to notice they were swearing by things and trying to outdo one another in their pledges or their vows. Head with me, please, to Matthew 23. Look at verse 16. Woe unto you blind guides who say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. You see that? If you just swear by the temple, what's that? I swear by the gold of the temple. What does that mean? It doesn't belong to them. They're just trying to swear by a higher authority. Notice what he says in verse 17. 
you fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold of the temple which sanctifies the, uh, the gold or the temple which sanctifies the gold? Whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing. But whosoever sweareth by the gift that is upon it, he's bound. They're swearing by all kinds of things and making up their own rules and regulations. What did Solomon say? Be careful when you vow a vow. Why is that? Now this is most interesting. Head back with me to Ecclesiastes. Remember he's talking to an Old Testament Jew. It's important to see that. It's important to recognize that because we're not told to give these vows and I'll show you that in just a moment. But recognize he's talking about an Old Testament Jew and pick it up please in uh, verse 5, uh, verse 4 again. When you vow a vow unto the Lord, defer not to pay it. For he hath no pleasure in fools, pay that which you have vowed. Better is it that you should not vow than that you should pay, uh, that you should vow and not pay. Verse 6, suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. You know essentially what he just said? And I know this is crude, but you, you understand. Put up or shut up. Put up or shut up. Don't be saying things that you can't back up or don't intend to back up. Now, for the sake of time, we're out of time. Turn with me to the 15th Psalm for a moment, please. The 15th Psalm. Again, we're under Old Testament law, but I think the refinement here under David is just showing us a real man of God, a man of God who abides with God, essentially. What's, what is this guy like? Notice in chapter 15 and verse 1, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle, or who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Here's the answer. It's he that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart, not rash with his mouth, but speaks the truth. Verse 3, he, he doesn't backbite his neighbor with his tongue, nor do evil to his neighbor, or take up a reproach against his neighbor. In whose eyes, this man who's right before the Lord, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors them who fear the Lord. He sweareth to his own hurt, and does not change. See, a lot of people say a lot of things before the Lord, and it all sounds good till it costs them something, till it gets expensive, till they have to go out of their way, till it becomes difficult. Then they change their mind pretty quick. This is a man that swears to his own hurt and does not change. Okay, in conclusion, I have 30 seconds. Turn with me to the gospel, I mean the epistle of James, please. The epistle of James. In the epistle of James, James is speaking, of course, to uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. Remember, this is the first of the New Testament books written uh, for us to have. And James is writing to the 12 tribes of Israel. First of the books written, James is the, we would call him the pastor at the church that's in Jerusalem. Very interesting. 
But what does he do? Well, he's writing to the people, and he's letting them know uh, the requirements of the Lord. This is what the Lord wants from you. This is the type of heart and mind the Lord would have for you. And you can see that in, um, in chapter 5, starting right in verse 7, he goes on to talk about the patience of, the patience of, the patience of. But in verse 12, we're in chapter 5 and verse 12, he breaks into the context here a little bit. I think it, it flows, but it's somewhat of a break here. Look at verse 12. He says, above all things, my brethren, swear not. That's don't make a vow. Swear not. Neither by heaven, neither by earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay be nay, lest you fall into condemnation. Don't start making vows that you cannot keep. Don't start making promises that you cannot keep. Remember in the, in the fourth chapter, there were people say, we're going to go into this country, we're going to going to work and sell and buy and get great gain, then we're coming back. And he said, wait a minute. You ought to say if the Lord wills, because you have no clue if you're coming back. Now, unfortunately, and I say quite unfortunately, some of the brethren, some Christians, and some people want, obviously, but some Christians have said, well, then we can't swear in a court of law. Yes, you can. You can put your hand on the Bible and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Why? Because you have the capacity to do that. Now, if the judge says, I want you to come back tomorrow, sorry, Your Honor, <laughs> I want to come back, but I don't know. I might not make it. I might be dead. I can't swear to that. But at that moment, I can swear to tell the truth. Uh, a serviceman uh, can, uh, can swear to, you know, give oath to protect the Constitution of the United States. He can do that. Why? Because that's his intent. That's what he's going to do. And that should be his heart and his mind. But as far as pledging things to the Lord that you cannot, you cannot have control over, um, don't be rash with your mouth. Don't be rash. James seems to indicate don't do it at all. Be very, very careful. Let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. Well, it has been wonderful. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your truth. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for a book such as Ecclesiastes. I, I confess, Lord, it's difficult. When we read through, we see the cynicism of this man and the utter hopelessness of his life as he turned from you and turned toward idols. Uh, not only the women, but the idols of the women that he turned to. Father, we pray that you would help us to recognize that we need to be uh, extra cautious with our lives. We know this life truly is vanity, but a life that's lived for you is fulfilling. It's a life pleasing to you. It's a life given to you, and you will, in fact, reward. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, for the triune Godhead that gives us this strength. Uh, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Greater is he that is in us than, than us. And I pray, Father, you just help each one of us to be careful with our thinking. Help us periodically to read through the book of Ecclesiastes and to see what a good example of a bad example really is so that we might recognize, Lord, your will for our lives. Thank you for this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.